Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Kyle, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for our conversation today about brands and about marketing, and I think this is a, a very timely topic, so welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. So I, I want to understand and start with, you know, how you even began your journey in this field. Like when you were younger, did you consider yourself a, a creative person? Like, did you have, you know, like this artsy side to you? Were you, you know, were you thinking of new ideas and exploring different things or, or did it come like over time? Tell me a little bit about your journey. Well, gosh, I mean, no one's actually ever asked me that question in the context of branding. So I, it's, uh, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm one of those guys who, you know, growing up, I didn't know what I wanted to do or be. And I thought I could be good at a couple different things. Turns out I wasn't good at any of those things. One of them was, uh, one of them was design and, uh, things like editing and that, and that kind of deal. Uh, I just thought that there was this creative path for me somehow. So my sister was, a, is still a very, very talented artist. My brother speaks like seven or eight languages fluently. And I was kind of like the one who didn't really have much, but I knew, it's kind of more the entrepreneur guy. And so I tried a bunch of different things. Turns out that I'm just a really good storyteller. I can craft a story for the right audience using the right words. I wouldn't edit it myself, but using the right words and the right visuals that I didn't create. So I can kind of put things together in a nice package. And, and that served me really well. After college, I, uh, I went to different companies and did a whole bunch of different things, but I ended up starting my own magazine in just in a couple months after 9-11. And again, it was just kind of blended everything together. I didn't want to shoot the photos. I didn't want to design the layout. Um, I did write some of the stories, but I didn't edit my own work. I just knew how to put it all together. And that became successful enough that we sold it to a competitor, actually near Neck of the Woods up in Boulder, Colorado. And after that, um, I went to online content for a while. Then I made the jump to online commerce, I guess you would say at the time. This is when everyone was using Yahoo stores and eBay and Amazon were pretty new. No one knew what to do. Websites still had like adidas.com and shop.adidas.com because they were like, well, one's marketing and one's sales and no one put them together yet. So in these early days of e-commerce and I learned that, well, I'm not really a sales guy. I'm not really an e-commerce guy, but I can tell a great story to get someone to our site. And if they want to buy our product, then great. And that turned into a 15 year long uh, e-commerce career. And for great brands, Dr. Martin's, Nike, uh, I did some consulting work for them, uh, Chrome Industries out of San Francisco, Keen Footwear out of Portland, so did some really great work and learned a lot, but it was all the storytelling. And when I learned from that brand side, from being in businesses, storytelling from a company is branding. And that's where I am today. So now I run a 16-person agency down here in South Carolina, uh, international agency, award-winning. I love it. It's just a great, uh, great life. But had you asked me, 
when I was 12, I probably would have told you I was going to mow lawns the rest of my life. Right. That's interesting. Well, and it's interesting because when I went to school, my undergrad was actually in marketing and finance. So kind of a, an interesting combination there, but I really liked marketing. I liked the creative side. I, I consider myself a, a creative type person and, you know, I like design and, you know, I, I had a, a landscape company. I started it when I was 16. I did it for 13 years. And part of that, wow. what I really loved was like the design piece. So mm-hmm. like going to somebody's yard and it's like, a completely blank palette. It's just a dirt field. And, you know, seeing a water feature in the corner or this outdoor kitchen or, or this cabana or whatever it was really excited me to like, see it and then like to build it. So I I got my, my fill there. And so, you know, I, I took a little pause from school and then, you know, I went back to school later on and that's when I was pursuing marketing. Cause I was like, I like the creative side. I, I like that piece. You know, I like the, the quantitative side of my family's like, what the heck are you, you know, like you're going <laughs> after finance, you're going after this. Like, it, it seems like opposites. Um, so it's interesting how we, we end up in our, our different positions. Well, a lot of people don't realize that sales and marketing in many organizations are under the same umbrella, typically the same VP run sales and marketing, there's a lot of overlap because you can't really sell your product without a really good marketing strategy. Now, some people, if you're commoditized, if you're buying Pepsi from a, you know, you're the gas station and you need to, you know, stock up your Pepsi, you know, it's really just, you know, you need to have it. You don't really need a lot of marketing there, but people then want to know about, you know, margin and making sure that you get the best bang and, you know, you get, you know, the best uh, POP displays and things, all that stuff is marketing as well. And when you're talking about direct to consumer, Marketing is everything. If you don't get to them, especially in this day and age, if you don't get to them first, if you're not showing them what your value proposition is, they're not going to buy your product, which is sales. So it, I see it as you probably picked the great, a great path to go down. Yeah, to have the combination of those two things. Question for you it related to brand. So what is brand exactly? I mean, a lot of people, they throw around that term like, okay, we have a brand. We have a, you know, it's almost like the culture word. It's like strong brand, strong culture. But what does brand even mean to you? Well, a lot of people define it differently. And that's really interesting because I find it to be very confusing for someone to hear it when they don't know what brand is. So I'll, I'll give you three definitions. David Ogilvy, if you ever watch Mad Men or anything, famed ad man, real, real guy in the 60s said that a brand is the intangible sum of a business's parts, right? All the things that make it up. Marty Neumeyer, who's very, very famous brand guy, says a person's perception of product, service, experience, or organization, it's their commercial reputation. We would say that a brand is, is really, all those things are right, but because you can't really touch a brand. It's not really a thing that you can hold and see. You can feel it. You can't smell it. You can't buy it. It's just this kind of amorphous thing out there. And yet everyone has one. Every business has a brand. And that's really when it comes to all those definitions, whether it's the commercial reputation that Neumeier says, whether it's the sum of all the attributes that Ogilvy says, where it's the emotional connection that we say, all those are right. And so when you're talking about brand and branding, you got to be really careful because it, brand is not a logo. A brand is not a name. A brand is not the company. A brand is really that that feeling you get, that emotional connection, that sum of all those pieces that tells you what that business is about. And that's really where the magic happens. So how much does a logo and a name really matter? So I, I work with some entrepreneurs and they're thinking about you know going off on their own and, and starting up a business. And they spend so much time on a logo. And, and I've had many friends, many colleagues come to me and they're like, hey, take a look at these 10 logos. Like, what do you think? I like this one, but I kind of like this. And then it gets down and they narrow it down to like 
two or three and it, it's literally it's almost like the same logo right it's like oh here's this triangle do you like it over here over the a or should i twist and put it over the n or whatever you know and it's how much does that really matter in the beginning and then also with the name like how much does a name really matter i mean granted you're not you know giving it something that's weird or you know gonna hurt you in the future how much does that stuff really matter well in the very beginning i would say it matters none you know, a logo in and of itself is nothing unless it represents something. And so when people start with logos, it, I think it's because people think it's easy. It's the fun part. It's like, hey, here's my new thing. This is what it's going to look like. And you're like, do you have a business plan? Do you have a, are you a going concern? Do you have any investment? Well, no, but here's my logo. Those are the people you got to be uh, gun shy of. Maybe we'll send them your way to, to help set them straight. A name is very similar. A name means nothing. You know, uh, Amazon, what is a Prada infested river? and jungle in Brazil have anything to do with selling books. Well, absolutely right. not. But, but now, and now it's everything, but you know, not just books, but if you look back at it, that name, he wanted something that, that really felt that was completely different, but also had an A and a Z in it. So you can sell everything from A to Z and it makes sense. But of itself, Amazon means nothing, but now it does now, because you understand who they are, what they do, how they think their products, their services, two day shipping, all that stuff means Amazon. So the name doesn't have any meaning until it's imbued with meaning. So I'll give you another example. Someone tells me about Steve, you, and they say, his name's Steve. Great. I don't care. You know, I don't know anything about you. I don't know what you look like, what you talk like. I don't know what your personality is. I don't know if you're kind or not. I don't know how old you are. I don't know what race you are. I don't know what sexuality you are. I don't know anything about you. I just know a guy's name. So is that important? No, that doesn't change my life at all. Right. Now, if somebody says, here's Steve and here's what he looks like, does that change things? Well, maybe I might have a slight perception of who you are now based on where you live and you're a white guy and you're a certain age and whatever. That might give me something, but I don't know who you are until I meet you and experience you. We have a conversation. I hear your voice. I hear what you're passionate about. I know your point of view. I know your personality. I know kind of your archetype. You're one of your Jungian archetypes. You know, are you a hero leader? Are you an everyman? Are you, you know, a helper? I don't know anything about you until I meet you and experience you. And then I, I see you again and I see you again. We develop some sort of relationship, whether it's a friendship or a business, you know, relationship, whatever it might be. That's when we start building something. So now when somebody says, Steve, I go, yep, got it. He's passionate about finances. He loves, he's super creative. He loves his family. He lives in Denver. Like, man, I'd love to hang out with him. That's now an emotional connection I've, I've created with you, regardless of what your name was, Steve, Dave, you know, Jennifer, it doesn't matter. So what you look like also doesn't matter. Now, when I see a photo of you later, or when I hear your name later, I can recall that information about my experiences with you and who you are. And I go, oh yeah, now I know who you're talking about. So it imbues meaning to a business and a brand only after you've experienced it. So how can you experience a business which hasn't been created yet? You can't. So I always tell people, I tell friends of mine, I tell family members, you're going to start a business. Sure. Come up with a name. Make sure you're okay with it being a working name or a working title because it might change until you know who you are, then you don't know what to call yourself. So when we look at names and logos, it's at the end of our branding process, which I think people hearing this might think is counterintuitive, but it's really not because if, unless you build the thing, you don't know how to describe the thing. And then your name actually has meaning. Then you can derive a name from all those different pieces of the brand, what, you know, where it came from and what's important to you and, and how you want to perceive yourself, what kind of products you're going to make. And then you can come up with a visual representation of that name, which together represents your brand, if that makes any sense. 
Sure. Absolutely. That makes sense. And you, and you talked about brand consistency. So let's say a, a company at the beginning, they're trying to figure out who they are. Kind of like Amazon, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think Jeff Bezos, he, he knew he wanted to sell books and he wanted to start with like a commoditized product and go from there. But let's just say these other companies, you know, maybe they start off and they, they start offering a, you know, a wide variety of services and then they narrow and then, you know, they, they, they figure out things along the way. How much does that hurt a brand by like switching gears, switching messages, changing their website? Does that make sense? Does that create mistrust among consumers or is that fine? And that's part of the process as organizations go on. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. I think there's something to be said about a business who is constantly iterating and tweaking as a response to how their consumer perceives them. So what I mean by that is if you're constantly thinking of yourself a certain way, but your audience is telling you, you're really this kind of person, then if you tweak and iterate to meet that expectation, I think you're better off. Now, if you do that without feedback, without that loop of interaction with your customer, and you're kind of doing this in your own vacuum, then you can definitely lead your, your people astray. So if, uh, you know, Warby Parker, great example, great example of a name, by the way, which means nothing apart from they love Jack Kerouac books and, and uh, you know, Dharma Bums is on the desk of every new hire there. Warby Parker means nothing in and of itself. It was literally two different names from a Kerouac book that they put together. Now, Warby Parker means high quality, low cost eyewear that's, you know, at your door very quickly. You can say, you know, their, their free try on thing was, uh, you know, their first, the brick wall is that, you know, there as well. But now if they came out with a new product that was $700, $800, the way like you used to have to get, you know, eyeglasses at Pearl Vision or something, people would go, well, wait a second, guys, that, that's not who you are. Like I'm used to the $120, $99 pair. You know, this is now what, this is weird. When they do that, they have to understand that they're going to break that trust with their audience because they're doing something which they've always told they weren't about. Another example would be, you know, Toyota. When Toyota bought Lexus and created that brand, they didn't say, here's our high-end Toyota. They said, here's another brand altogether called Lexus, which happens to be a higher-end luxury car. Because they didn't want to kind of confuse consumers at that mid-level. This, you know, Toyota's had this reputation of being long-lasting, tried-and-true, high-quality, run-forever. You know, the Camry was the most popular car in the market for years. Why hurt that by introducing something else? Now, it might be a good business strategy for the parent company to introduce, I mean, the parent company is called Toyota, to introduce another brand called Lexus that can serve a different market, that can fill a different void, that can position itself separately. But there's the key word is positioning. That brand is positioned in a slightly different and yet completely opposite position as Toyota. Now, slightly different meaning it's still high quality. It's still a great car, but completely opposite meaning it's, it's a, could be priced out for most people who buy Toyotas. So they fill the void, which they were not competing against themselves, but it has a different value proposition, a different brand positioning, and they did it, it all without having to hurt or kind of, you know, lop the Toyota brand off at all. So it's definitely important to know who you are in the marketplace. And we see a lot of brands who, quite frankly, think they know who they are, but don't go out and talk to people. It's why I love when I hear like the CEO of Southwest Airlines or the CEO of Amtrak or, you know, these folks, they actually go out and, you know, work volunteer stations where they answer the phones because they actually understand that they're not defining their brand, their audiences, their customers are. No, that, and that's a great point. I, I like that starting with the customer and, and getting that feedback. How does a, a company know when it's time to split off and like carve out like one of their brands. And let me give you an example. So there's a, a construction company that I know, right? They, they do 
commercial construction. So they build hospitals and data centers and warehouses. And then they, you know, they acquired another company, a restoration company, which still kind of fits because restoration has to do, you know, you're reconstructing damaged, damaged buildings and, you know, it could kind of fit under the brand. Is it wise to try to roll it up under a, a strong brand that's been around for 40, 50 years, right? And use that same name or carve right. out an entire different name? And I know from like a strategy, legal entity structure perspective, you know, I, I have, you know, my perspective on how that works as far as, Hey, do we create a, a separate entity, legal entity, and here's the advantages and all that stuff. But I more from a brand perspective, I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective. Well, you can go in a bunch of different ways and without knowing the specifics of, of that construction company, you're really talking about brand architecture and brand architecture is just kind of the hierarchy of related brands, either within a company or, you know, a department even. And you can see this kind of different phases of brand architecture, you know, having Toyota as the parent brand is one, San Lexus is another. You can have one that, you know, your master brand is Virgin and Virgin has all of these brands named Virgin Airways and Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Mobile and Virgin Megastores. And, and there's different ways you can do it. I would say you have to ask yourself, if you roll that restoration company up into the construction company and name it the same thing as the construction company, one, that's completely viable. You can do it, but are you doing it at the expense of the restoration company's former customers? Are you doing it? Are you eroding that brand's kind of reputation by basically getting rid of it? Unless you absorb that, those brand qualities. Now, if they're completely divergent and restorate, I'm making this up, right? But if it's all high-end restoration of, Victorian homes from the 1800s in Denver. And the other one is hospitals and whatever else you said, libraries and schools and more like commercial type buildings. Sure. Those seem a little incongruent to me. And how do you, how do you apply high-end restoration to, you know, new hospitals or vice versa? You might not be able to do that. So sometimes it's just having a a gut check and saying, well, that doesn't feel right. So what I'm going to do is keep the name of the restoration company or maybe change it because we purchased it. And maybe have the other one as well. Now my umbrella company might remain the same as the construction company, or that might be a different LLC, but you're going to keep them differently. Why? Because they have different brand meanings. They're positioned differently. One's restoration, which is fundamentally different than construction. Uh, I think there's different ways you can do that. But I've also seen people roll it up into one, depending on how much equity is left in one business or the other. We've all seen examples of, you know, Miller and cores joining and combining their names, you know, because they're kind of sort of equal. You know, I think they were like number two and three in the nation. So instead of calling it, you know, just Miller or just cores, but there's so many examples of companies that take their acquired businesses names and some that keep their own and some that keep them separate. So it's really just a matter of what damage are you doing or what are you gaining from changing, keeping or absorbing another brand's name into your own? Well said. I like that. So a lot of people, they, they probably try to figure out branding on their own, you know, whether they're starting a company and they say, I got this, you know, I'm going to come up with a cool logo, cool name. I'm going to, you know, come up with some fun text on the website that kind of describes our organization and our value prop. Then there's probably some other organizations that, you know, maybe the internally they have people that, you know, they have marketing experience or marketing execs and they try to go about it themselves. And then they eventually come to you and they say, Hey, Kyle, help us. So when they do that, or when, when people come to you for help, what do you see as the biggest like missteps that happen or areas where, you know, that they just don't get right? The biggest thing is what we've already talked about is just listening, you know, listening to their customers, the ones who think that they know it and they just need a polished logo or, or they know who they are, but they just need X. 
those are the ones we pretty much steer clear from. And we, you know, we'll reject them or we'll recommend them to somebody else. We have no problem doing that. The issue is a lot of folks, there's a lot of CEOs out there who, who love to know everything, right? They're, they don't want to step aside. Uh, they think they can do everything. And, and while some are very talented and, and all the CEOs we work with are fantastic, there's not many who I can actually see can do everything. And you can't run HR and legal and, you know, and do marketing and do sales and be the face of the company. And it's just, it's just too much. No one can really do that. Now you might have to do that at the, at the beginning of a startup, but it's not sustainable. And so once you come in and go, oh, this is who we are, and they're not listening to their marketing team, or they're not listening to their audience. Those are the ones that are that are pretty tough. It's also when you say you're one thing, but do something different. And you know, it's just not unlike a person. If somebody tells you you're going to do something, and then they do something completely different, or they don't do what they said at all, that breaks trust. And when people think that their business is going to do X, and then they're actually running counter to that and doing Y or something completely different, it's one of those things where you go, okay, well, you're going about your business in a way that we don't think is very honorable. We don't want to give you meaning because you don't, you're not giving yourself meaning. You're giving your kind of this antithetical kind of proposition. Basically these people think one thing and you're doing something completely different. So that's really, really hard. The biggest, the biggest thing we do is actually set people down C levels or, or directors and above, whoever it might be, however big the company is and who's involved with stakeholders and ask them, describe your business. And we ask them to do that. This is really important. We ask them to do that individually to us. And, you know, Steve, tell me what you think. And then John, tell me what you think. And if they're different, that's a problem. And unfortunately, most of the time they are different. Someone says, oh, we're all about fun. Someone says, oh, we're all about, you know, innovation and technology. Someone says, we're all about people and caring. We're all about philanthropy. And you bring them all back and you go, do you know that you guys can't even agree on what you're about? If you can't agree on that, how on earth are you going to have a message or a position that you can tell customers what you're about, because that means they're equally as confused. If the four founders or two founders or the CEO and CEO can't agree, how do you even expect anyone else to agree? You know, so that's really, really difficult. It's like a mother and a father telling their kids two fundamentally different things, but not at the same time. And the kids just end up being confused. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll gravitate to the louder voice, the one that gets them in less trouble. And what you do at that point is you end up having this lowest common denominator of a value proposition, which doesn't really go too far because it's not unique and original. So what we do first is try to look at those commonalities and try to say, well, okay, well, here's what we hear you, you guys talking about. You're saying this, but we're really doing that. And, and I'll give you an example. People say we're all about philanthropy and yet they don't let any other people take time off to volunteer. We'll have a hard conversation with them and say, well, here's what your employees are saying. And they're saying, this is a little different than what you're saying. We either need to adjust your expectations or their expectations or, you know, change the core values. And that's why we start with brand and branding from who are you, what's your position, what's your position internally and externally in the marketplace, who do your customers think you are? And more importantly, almost to start, who do your staff think you are? What are you telling them? Because they're the ones who are going to live and breathe this thing. So it's a lot and it can go, it can get derailed many different ways, but it's usually from the company themselves. Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. 
Sure. And that makes sense. And, and it's interesting because, you know, what I do is, is strategy, like business strategy. And, and then I combine finance into that. And, you know, I think strategy without like the financial side is just, you know, it, it's either a marketing plan or it's just a bunch of gimmicky words, right? So some companies they do strategic planning is what they call it, but it's really, Hey, here's our mission, vision values. And they slap it up on the wall and they say, that's our strategy. Right. right. But what I look at is say, okay, how do you have a strategy which can help you you know, define your market focus and position, your competitive behavior, like how are you going to compete in the marketplace? And then, you know, your returns and your resources and everything else. We have this framework that we use. And so a big part of that, like tying it into the financial piece is like, okay, how do you drive value? And if you want to get real nerdy and break it down, there's, you know, there's mathematical equations of how you drive intrinsic value in an organization. So if you, if you look at it, there's really three drivers that we tell customers, you say you get price premiums, right? So you get a higher price that drives value. You have costs and capital efficiencies. So you can provide the same services, your competitors at a lower cost, or you can manage your capital better and have a lower cost there, or you could grow the business. So those are the three main drivers. So one of the drivers under price premium is brand, right? So we talk to customers about, okay, one way to get a higher price or get price premiums is by having a strong brand. Right. Now, obviously when value exceeds price, customers buy. When price exceeds value, customers don't buy. And in most companies, it's easy to discount their products or do these, these other things to lower that price to get it below the perceived value. And we yep. always say, why don't you work on driving greater perceived value to get a, yes. a higher price? Yes. So I, I guess, you know, my, my question is, is, is more around the brand. So if somebody says, okay, Steve, I get that, right? Like we want to pursue a strategy where we could get a price premium and we, we think that's feasible. So we want to drive a better brand, better client experience, better quality, yep. like all this stuff. And they say, we have X amount of dollars to do that. Kyle, how do we do that? Like, how do we drive a better brand, a stronger brand, a brand that will result in value? Well, I love what you just said. I don't think I've ever heard it articulated that way. I typically don't hang out with finance people for a reason. Um, <laughs> you seem to be a little bit more excited than the ones I know. Um, I love that you said when price is greater than value that people don't buy. And that's absolutely true. Think about brands that we all like. I'm an outdoor guy. We do a lot of outdoor brands here. And if you if you take them all kind of like an order, I might be messing this up, but just say, for example, you've got things like Columbia and then you've got like North Face and then maybe Patagonia. And then probably looking at like Arcteryx or one of those higher end, you know, premium brands. If you look at them, the price goes along with it. If you buy, you can buy a $500 Arcteryx rain jacket and you can probably buy the same idea, the same utility factor out of the Columbia one for 60 bucks or something and a range in the middle. You can't all of a sudden, like we talked about Warby Parker, you can't all of a sudden take that Columbia jacket and price it up to 500 bucks because when the price exceeds the value, like you said, no one buys it. It's also, you know, doesn't make sense. It's out of the character for them, which is it's completely strange to people. They go, well, why would I buy that when all of the other products are at this price point? You're also alienating the people who have been your bread and butter for years. Now, sure. if Arcteryx as well discounts their product, then you've got some problems because they're going, well, something must be wrong with this because they're discounting it. And so you have to be really careful with that. I'll give you a quick example before I answer your question. I worked for a company called Now, uh, N-A-U, and it was started by former Patagonia and former Nike employees. They're a little bit ahead of their time. They had a few retail stores in the first iteration, uh, I think seven or eight across the country. Uh, it was very much like Bonobos. You couldn't buy it and walk out with it, but you could try try it on and then ship it to you within a day. It was very, very cool, but a little bit ahead of their time. I think they went bankrupt and then purchased a few different times. Now they're doing really well. 
but they're highly sustainable, high quality, premium outdoor product. And it's done in a very stylish way. So back in the days when if you wanted the performance of a you know North Face jacket, but you didn't want it to look like lime green, like you were climbing K2, you could get a now jacket and spend probably the same amount of money, six, $700 for this fully waterproof, recycled polyester, beautiful jacket, which was sustainable, was great for the environment, looked great and offered you the same performance of you know, those other premium products. Okay, that's awesome. But you're a new brand. So no one knew who you were. So you're trying to sell a $600 jacket to somebody who just never heard the name and doesn't really have meaning behind it. It has some, you know, a little bit of the sustainability story, but you don't know much more than that. And sure. so when I came on there, I was their e-commerce director. When I first came on, we were discounting every couple of weeks because we wanted to hit payroll. So 70% off a $600 jacket over time, what do you do? You tell your customer that that $600 jacket was never worth $600 because people are smart. They, they might not know margin, but they kind of know that you're going to make money enough that it's probably worth, you know, exactly, you know, whatever, whatever the math is, $158, whatever it is. And then you're never going to get that person to buy the $600 jacket. So you're taking your luxury product, you're demeaning it, and then you're expecting people to still purchase it at a higher price. Sure. So I came on and I said, we're not doing that anymore. So this is the start to the answer to your question. We're not going to discount a high profitable, high value product because it's worth that. So we went on, we didn't do any sales. Of course, you have to do key sales periods because we're Americans. We want the Black Friday sale, the July 4th sale. And, and typically for a fashion brand, by the way, you have two sales cycles. It's very seasonal. So you've got fall, winter, spring, summer at the end of each season because you're clearing out certain colorways that were only brought in for that season. You want to discount that to clear the inventory. And that's expected. Everyone from the Gap does that to, to Nike. It's everyone does it. But we weren't discounted every week anymore. And so this was like, I think July or something. So after July 4th sale, we didn't do this again. So we're waiting and we're waiting, no discounts, no discounts, new line drops, August 15th, brand new products. So no discounting September comes, we're not making a cent. And this was starting to scare the crap out of me. Cause I'm going, okay, everything I ever learned about e-commerce is wrong. Right. And I'm like, I can't admit this. And I'm like going home crying. Like, what am I doing? I, I'm completely wrong. Everything I've learned is wrong. The GM would come over to me. Great guy. I think he's now at Osprey now. Really, really smart guy. And he would be like, Kyle, we need a discount. I'm like, we're not discounting. It's like, we need a discount. I go, no, it's going to work. Finally, this happened. He comes to me and goes, listen, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm going to have to go to the investors and ask for more money. We're not going to hit payroll. And I said, you got to hold on. You got to hold on. This is like the end of October. So we're talking like four months of this happening. All of July, all of August, all of September, all of October. And I'm like, you got to trust me. And I'm thinking I'm going to quit before they realize I'm a fraud. This is like imposter syndrome 101. And see, I told you I was a good storyteller. You're, you're riveting. <laughs> what happens? Anyway, it was a combination of the weather getting colder and people going, well, I really wanted that jacket. I kept, I kept looking at it and I, they're not going to put it on sale. And they started buying. And when they started buying at that clip, you started letting people know, no, we're not going to discount. This is valuable. We did a couple of small things as well. We redesigned the website a little bit. We started imbuing a lot more brand meaning behind the descriptions of the product, homepage, things like that, or emails and things. So it wasn't all just in this little bubble of sales or no sales, but I started J-curving and we ended up having our most profitable year. The point is, if you have a little bit of money and you want to overcome this idea of price versus perceived value, what you have to do is invest in the brand and you need to trust the consumer. Because now if you've gone too far off the cliff, there it might you might have to do something drastic to pull it back. Maybe it, maybe that's a rename or whatever. But for the most part, people always like to think their product is more valuable than it is, or they think that people don't want to buy a high value product. So therefore they're going to discount the price. When I first joined over here, 
a lot of it is, you know, we're, we're going project to project working with companies, you know, we're spending a lot of money for a rebrand, full rebrand from name to website and the whole deal. And it's, it's quite a bit, you could reach six figures sometimes. And, you know, we were, we were in a little bit of a cash crunch at one point between, between quarters, between fiscal years. And so uh, the CEO said, Hey, I think this, I think we should sell this for 40. I'm making the numbers up. And I'm sure. like, well, it's worth, it's worth 80. He's like, I don't know if they're going to go for it. 40 is better to have in our hand than nothing. So I'm afraid if we go for 80. And I said, I, an old friend of mine, Chase Jarvis, who uh, who founded Creative Live up in Seattle, he, I remember him saying to me a long time ago, he goes, if you, if you cut your price, you're always going to be known for that price. But if you keep your price, you're always going to be known at that price. And when they can afford you, they'll call you back. So I started saying, no, it's worth 80. We're charging them 80. The proposal said 80. And that started a conversation with the client. And they said, well, that's a little bit more than we thought, but well, let me tell you what you're getting with that. And here's where our value comes in. Here's where our brand comes in. You get honesty and integrity with us. You get, you know, you can call us anytime. We're going to deliver high quality, warranty the website, blah, blah, blah. Okay. We're going to trust you. We like, we like this. 80 it is. That happened two or three times before we all realized as a company we really are, again, I'm making the numbers up, but we really are the $80,000 rebrand company, not the $40,000 rebrand company. When those people realize that they're paying for what it's worth, it's going to make sense. Sure. The long way around the table, what do you do if you have little money? You invest in your brand. You, you invest in your brand. You invest in kind of the, the touch points of that brand with your consumers to let them know why you're worth that. And you wait. And if you have a little bit more money, you invest in it again. And you let your consumers understand that you're not going to balk because you personally believe in your product. And that's really the, the key to everything. And, that, and that's like lightning in a bottle right there. If you believe it and the customer believes it, you're going you're gonna to make money. So how do you invest in your brand? Like, how do you do that? Say I have some extra money laying around and I say, hey, I, I want to take your advice, Kyle. I want to invest in my brand. Is that hiring an expert like you? Is that like optimizing parts of the website? Is it doing graphic design stuff? Like explain to me, how would I do that? Well, it all depends what your, what your problem is. So if you're struggling with, you know, uh, use a website example, if you're struggling with traffic to the website, I would invest in some awareness campaigns. If you're struggling with conversion on the website, you would, you would, you know, do some optimization and some AB testing and things like that. So it all depends where you are. If you have a brand issue out in the marketplace, you might want to do some brand activation. You know, Nike famously drops new shoes and new lines by having a, you know, a three on three basketball tournament in the middle of Harlem. And all of a sudden there's all this buzz around it because, you know, why are these NBA players playing three on three in Harlem? Everyone shows up. It's a big deal. That's a brand activation, right? And you get that kind of awareness out there. So do people know who you are? That's one thing. That's when you have to get awareness generated. If they, if they know who you are and they're not purchasing, then you probably need to invest a little bit of explaining your story, telling what your products are, what the broad product benefits are, what your unique selling proposition is. If they're not returning, if they're purchasing and not returning, uh, meaning if they're not returning to, to, uh, to buy something, not returning the product, then you probably have to invest in a little bit of your, your post-purchase strategy. You know, are you reaching out to customers? Are you sending them something? Are you giving them some surprise and delight when it's their birthday or their anniversary of when they bought a product? Or if you've learned they've only bought women's shoes in the past, why are you sending them a men's shoe email? You know, so you're sure. telling them you don't know who they are. So it all depends what phase the purchase cycle or awareness cycle your customer is involved in. And if you find critical mass around one particular area, then you invest in that. So I know I'm not really answering your question now, but it's, it really depends on, you know, do you want people to know more people know who you are or the people who know you buy more? or just convert more. So that's really where you have to ask yourself what to do. So sometimes, yeah, it might, it might mean a complete redesign because your website isn't working. Sometimes it just might mean a massive 
online social campaign to generate some brand awareness. Look at, you know, like I said, I'm an outdoor and shoe guy. So I follow a lot of these products. Look at, you know, Allbirds, for example, completely digitally native vertical brand that started out of nowhere. And all of a sudden it became this big deal. Now they're doing, you know, recycled shoes with the collab with Adidas. No one knew that was going to happen five, six years ago. They have standalone stores in, in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Those are the kind of companies that they started off generating awareness and one product and told people, we do this one thing better than anybody. And then let the people come and experience what you're telling them is true. Hopefully they have a good experience if you're being honest. And then you have a chance to say, okay, great. You like this? Let me show you some more. They rely on word of mouth. They rely on influencers. They rely on kind of that to just kind of permeate into the ether. And then you have have something. The ones that need to make a massive pivot because they've kind of misplaced their bets and they've invested in a product or something that doesn't work. It comes to mind, you know, the, the gap redesign of their, their logo that went bonkers and, you know, they had to revert to the old one again. Uh, you just have to, you know, kind of do damage control and see again, who do you need to go to? Do you need to offer a mea culpa to customers? Do you offer them, you know, some sort of free gift for their, you know, bad experience? Do you offer to meet them someplace, be heard, have them write a review, there's so many different angles you can go in, but you ask, fundamentally have to start with what the problem is. And if you don't know what that is, then you can't really fix it. Yeah. And I, I think that's very well said. And it's defining the problem. It's defining it really well. And that can be difficult sometimes, but I think that's a great starting point. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about um, e-commerce in the world of this post-pandemic. So what yeah. do you see organizations doing? How have things shifted in the landscape of marketing and branding? And talk a little bit about that. Well, the biggest thing I've seen you know, personally in, in the pandemic and as we exit it, gosh, I hope we're exiting it finally. But as we're, as we're seeing this is that so many pe- more people have discovered online shopping and online, whatever engagement online. Obviously we're talking over zoom, even, I don't even know how podcasts were done two years ago, probably just a phone call and some crappy little connection. Right. Everything has changed. But what's happened is the companies that have got it right have been taking that as a taking that touch point of e-commerce sales and really treating that with kid gloves. So they're they're putting a lot of marketing efforts in the out-of-box experience, for example, in the packaging experience, how they're getting their product. You know, sometimes you not everyone can afford free two-day shipping like Amazon does. And and you know, they lose money on that, but it's one of those things that a smaller company can do it only if you maybe raise, you know, raise your product price, so you can share margin can cup, help subsidize that. People now expected it during the pandemic. And so all of those things meant we're going to adjust with you. We're kind of in this together. And the ones who did it right really made it a really deep connection with people. It comes to mind, Nate Checkets, who's the CEO of Roan. Roan's a great menswear company. Um, I, I wore their running tops and shorts this morning when I ran a great, great company. I can't say enough about these guys, but Nate in particular is a guy who really believes in people and connections above anything else, definitely above profits, although they're very profitable. And he sent out an email during the pandemic. And you remember everyone started getting these emails like, here's what we're doing during the pandemic. And like, he's like, why do people care what we're doing during the pandemic? Like that we're possibly sending your stuff slower or our warehouses, you know, backed up like every other person on the, on the planet. So he sent out an email, which was, here's five things that you could possibly do during the pandemic. And it was like, spend more time with your kids, read a book, exercise. And it was like really cool because one, it was from his brand, which is very, very about health and especially like a mental health as well and being with your family and being present. And also um, it just was something different. It was out of the blue. And that email was like written up in Wall Street Journal and all these people like, oh my gosh. And yet it's so basic, right? It's just, it's just so easy to understand what's going on. So businesses like that, who, who in, 
countered their customer during the pandemic, earned the right to speak to them almost however they wanted post-pandemic. So you marry that with the fact that everyone who maybe couldn't understand omnichannel or or didn't have a mobile app ready or definitely didn't have their e-commerce, you know, engines working properly, invested heavily in doing that. That's why Shopify like nearly doubled in their valuation because all these mom and pop companies who never had a web presence or never had the time to take photos of all their products and put them online finally had a way to do it and the time to do it. And they they exited the other way. So now we're we're seeing, you know, 75, 80% e-commerce traffic coming from mobile. Now it's always been inching up every year, but I've never seen numbers like that. I mean, one of our clients is 82%, which is crazy. Now, B2B is still roughly more desktop than, than, than mobile, but B2C, it's changed the game. So now people are expecting a whole new level of competency and care when they're buying a product. They want to know where their product is. They want to know you know, is it going to be on time? They want to know that they're getting the best price. They want to know that they can reach customer service properly, that they have a return, they can do it well. All that had to change and, and to be excellent from these businesses. Otherwise you will lose them as a customer, especially the ones who are big box and, uh, you know, multi-brand retailers. Because if you get that wrong, now you have so many choices you can go to because everyone's kind of the game. It's a level playing field. So you don't have to order from Amazon anymore. You can order from Best Buy because you probably will get the same price, but you're going to get it faster from Amazon. Oh, but Best Buy, you might be able to get, pick it up in store same day. So that kind of stuff that came out of like curbside shopping and all that stuff, pick up in store was starting to become prevalent before, but now is really there uh, and it's not going anywhere. So that's what's really changed from a brand perspective. It's all how you communicate those things, how you communicate care to people, how you communicate that they're important. And, and in some ways, your business isn't that important. You know, at one point we're all at home I mean, I remember those first two weeks of like crazy lockdown. People didn't know if this stuff was in the air outside of their house. Remember, we were wiping down our packages when right. they showed up. People didn't know what was happening. We were, all, we were all the same, which was kind of beautiful and scary at the same time. Beautiful in the sense that we're all equal, scary in the sense that we didn't know what's happening, not that we were all equal. And people who felt a connection with the brands in which they loved are going to be lifetime supporters of those brands. And those are the ones who got it right. So can a, an organization you know, go rogue with their brand. And what I mean by that is, okay, so you have the person who part of their website, they have like their a picture of their family and their kids, which nothing wrong with that, right? But they make it, they they invite in that, like the personal side to their organization, right? Do you have the person on their website that has the F word on the homepage, right? Because they're like, I'm right. authentic and I'm just, you know, this is how I speak. Right. And then you have other people that like, try a little too hard. Like you look at their materials and it's, you're just like, okay, come on. You know, like you're, you're trying a little bit too hard to be cool or to be this or to be that. And then you have, you know, companies that essentially copy the brands of other organizations. And you're like, yeah, you know, like this really isn't this, this is this, right. right. Um, can, can companies go rogue? And like, if they do, like, where do you see them misstepping most of the time? Well, I think, I think, What's collectively true of all those scenarios is that they're all, they all breed inauthenticity. And if you are inauthentic in your delivery, people, I, I'm a firm believer that people can sniff you out. Now, if you're a commoditized product, if you, know, if you don't matter, if you don't care what kind of toilet paper you buy, it almost doesn't matter. But anyone who's going to go through the trouble of trying to do something different, to, to be different, I think you can really, you can really sense that. Look at um, Dollar Shave Club. You know, when they first did uh, this great YouTube advertisement years ago with the CEO, long before they were sold for $1 billion, you know, they were like, hey, a dollar a razor blade, this is insane. And they played up that goofy, kitschy, we don't care, 
you know, uh, I, I mean, I love that that video. If you, if you guys haven't seen it, it's uh, just look up Dollar Shave Club a vi- original video. You know, there's a dancing bear in it, and you know, it's the real CEO. It's it's pretty fantastic. What anyone else would do if they tried to replicate that, it just comes off as inauthentic. It comes off as that you're not real, that you don't have a unique position yourself. You know, and so Harry's didn't do that, or all the other ones that came out of the woodwork after that, they didn't do that. They went in a different direction premium packaging and going in big box instead of, you know, necessarily online direct. So you have to know your own market. The ones who do, who copy, I firmly believe get found out very, very quickly. And then you just, you really just run the risk of losing customer and you definitely lose market share because of that. Sometimes the brand in which you copy will be the ones who out you anyway. And sometimes it's in a way that's kind of tongue in cheek and ironic like, you know, hey, the best, you know, the best form of flattery is imitation and they'll put it on an ad and, you know, and show the company who's imitating them. So you run the risk of really, really hurting not just your business, but your reputation by, by doing that. So, but again, if you don't have a unique selling proposition or a reason why you're selling, which is unique or a point of view that is really yours, I, I, mean, I don't care if I don't, I try not to anyway, use the F word in life and, and online, but if you did, man, own it, you know, be, be, because that's everything you do. And I would say, understand your archetype. You're probably an outlaw brand. You're probably a brand like, you know, Vans or Harley Davidson or ones that, you know, completely cut against the grain or where I used to be at Dr. Martin's that you can get away with that because it feels right. But you would never have like Converse do that because they're just like, you know, that's that character for them. It's off brand for them. So I believe people get found out pretty quickly. And again, if you, if you liken brands to people, the ones who are inauthentic are the ones that typically you have the most problems with. They have the least friends. They're the ones who you can't trust. You don't want to hang out with much because you know that they're insecure and they're hiding behind something and they don't have an opportunity to be themselves. So brands are the exact same way. That makes sense. So if, if you're giving somebody advice, if somebody came to you and said, Kyle, you know, I, I want to have a strong brand. You know, I, I get like everything you do, I, I think is great. Tell me what's the one thing that I should get right. Or one thing I, I should focus on, like what, what's the one piece of advice you would give to them or to other organizations listening out there? Uh, well, you just said the word, if there's one thing I would tell anybody who wants to get it right is just listen. And you just got to listen and be patient. And, and who are you listening to? You're listening to the market, your competitors, you're listening to your internal staff. You're listening to uh, the customers you have or the ones you want. You're just listening you know, there's a great book called um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Sure. And we made our leaders read it here. But one of the things that's really poignant about that before they even get to the five dysfunctions is the new CEO walks around for weeks and just listens. And I love that because you can learn so much about a culture and so much about a business and, and so much about a brand by by doing that. And I think, and I'm one to you know talk, right? I'm definitely the pot calling the kettle black on this one because- Obviously, I like to talk and, and it's hard for me to listen sometimes. But when you do, you'd be fascinated by how much you learn. And brands who want to do one thing, and it costs you nothing, by the way, unless you go off and like get a you know focus group or something to listen to them. It costs you nothing just to talk to your people. You know, I've I've literally, when I was at Dr. Martin's, our office in Portland was above one of our retail stores. And I would sometimes just go downstairs and ask people what their favorite product was or why they own the product, or you know, is it their first pair or their 30th pair, or have they owned the same pair for 30 years. They lost it. I want to know their stories because that really informs how you speak to those people because you want to be able to speak with, to them with integrity and honesty. And like we said, authenticity. So number one, listen, Got it. Saves you too. 
That's great. Great advice, Kyle. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Um, you know, it, you do great work and, you know, I just love, uh, love your thoughts on branding and, and just your whole approach to business and everything else. So keep up the, the good work. Thank you for your time. And thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And you definitely gave me to think about some things about uh, finance guys these days. So thanks for that. <laughs> Hopefully I, I, I gave you a good perspective. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.